นะโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะบุตรังธรรมังสังขังนมัสสามิเมื่อวันนี้เราได้ร้องเพลงธรรมชาติของพระพุทธเจ้าพระพุทธเจ้าพระพุทธเจ้าพระพุทธเจ้าพระพุทธเจ้าพระพุทธเจ้าพระพุทธเจ้าพระพุทธเจ้าพระพุทธเจ้าพระพุทธเจ้าพระพุทธเจ้าพระพุทธเจ้าพระพุทธเจ้าพระพุทธเจ้าพระพุทธเจ้าพระพุทธเจ้าพระพุทธเจ้าพระพุทธเจ้าพระพุทธเจ้าพระพุทธเจ้าพระพุทธเจ้าพระพุทธเจ้าพระพุทธเจ้าพระพุทธเจ้าพระพุทธเจ้าพระพุทธเจ้าพระพุทธเจ้าพระพุทธเจ้าพระพุทธเจ้าพระพุทธเจ้าพระพุทธเจ้าพระพุทธเจ้าพระพุทธเจ้าพระพุทธเจ้า Given the name Prabuddha Dhammachakramaravati, which means the the venerable Buddha who turns the wheel of Dhamma in the deathless realm. So, uh, with uh, particularly with Lumpur Sumato as uh, arrival uh, imminent, we hope. <laughs> Touch wood, <laughs> should be uh, arriving here on uh, Thursday to be here for the whole month. So. Uh, uh, It's a natural time to reflect upon these teachings and to uh, uh, say, consider this uh, uh, say central aspect of, of the Buddha's teaching. I mean, what's here in the the Dhamma Chakka Sutta, the, the teaching on, on the Middle Way and the Four Noble Truths. Well, it's interesting that in many ways that it's such a, a simple teaching, and um, uh, deceptively simple in many respects. And even in the Buddha's lifetime, uh, people easily misunderstood what he was aiming at, and uh, it was often misinterpreted as something of a nihilistic teaching. That um, it seemed like the the goal of the spiritual life was. Uh, not being born again, you know, the cessation of rebirth, nibbana, and uh, so people easily interpreted that as a as an, an annihilation. Uh, you know, this we seem to be an existent being, and not being born again seems to imply well, this being is going to be wiped out and not exist anymore. And but the Buddha highlighted this himself. He said, "Those who say that I teach the annihilation of an existent being." They misrepresent the Tathagata. They do not say what I say, and uh, they uh, uh, they present my my teachings in, in a um, a false or confused, a deceptive manner. And then he says, "What I teach as formally is dukkha and the ending of dukkha, suffering and the ending of suffering." So that still doesn't sound terribly <laughs> glamorous uh, in many ways. But the Buddha was prepared to be to be misunderstood uh, in order to give a, a precise and practical, helpful teaching. And so he spent 45 years really uh, explaining, expounding, uh, elaborating on the the principle of the Four Noble Truths and the application of the the Eightfold Path as the the way in which our spiritual fulfillment can really be be brought about. But it was a common misunderstanding, and uh, the sense of of uh, thinking that there must be more to it than that. I was just reading in uh, uh, the current edition of, of the Middle Way, the magazine from the Buddhist Society. Uh, um, it has uh, articles from over the the um, the ten decades of of teachings of the uh, the Middle Way's publication since the uh, Buddhist Society was begun in 1926, I believe. So that they've been uh, publishing this magazine uh, over many, many decades, and uh, in one of the uh, uh, the articles, it was uh, describing the uh, the uh, the founder of the Buddhist Society, Christmas Humphreys, was praising this particular person in their obituary for having described uh, the Buddha's teaching as the the path of becoming. And how in that uh, the piece that she wrote, she was saying, "Oh, yeah, I wish I'd thought of that phrase first because it's so perfect. I have to thank the people who coined that phrase to describe Buddha Dhamma as the path of becoming." 
And then uh, in Christmas Humphreys' description, he says, uh, you know, people, people from the Theravada tradition, they, they criticized her and blamed her. This was Caroline Rhys-Davids was the, the person who uh, um, uh, wrote that. And he said, oh, people criticized her and blamed her, but you know, I, I really applaud her. I think this is great and that uh, she's really on the right track because this is, it's, this is absolutely on the mark. You know, the Buddha's teaching is indeed the path of becoming. So I'm not trying to find fault with Christmas Humphreys or Caroline Reese Davids, who was the president of the Pali Tech Society for many years, the wife of, of um, Professor Reese Davids, who founded it in the uh, 1880s. But uh, it's just as a common view that uh, some people found it hard to read the words of the Pali Canon and think, well, th- th- this, this seems to be so negative or nihilistic. This must be a misinterpretation, <laughs> a misrepresentation. This is some kind of quote-unquote monkish gloss. It's a strange phrase. You know, some, some deluded monks over the centuries have, have misinterpreted, mistranslated, misrepresented it, and so it's come across in this, this negative way that the Buddha must instead have been teaching this uh, a path of becoming in, instead or something that's much more, uh, in a sense, eternalistic or that promises a, a kind of noble and blessed life for eternity in some kind of transcendent state of being. But uh, I feel that that was, that was natural enough and understandable enough, but it's also striking to me that even in the Buddha's own lifetime, he was being misinterpreted in that way. <laughs> and so over, over and over again, he said, what I teach is dukkha and the ending of dukkha. And as I said, he was, uh, he was familiar with people say, you know, misunderstanding him, saying that the idea of ending rebirth, uh, transcending suffering, was uh, was an annihilation. He said, you know, some people, uh, some people uh, hold back. They they uh, they hear the teaching talking about the stilling of all formations, uh, the the uh, the ending of all attachments, the ending of rebirth, and they think, oh no, yeah, I will be annihilated. I will be no more. And they they wail and beat their breast. So in, in his own lifetime, he was very familiar with that misunderstanding. But uh, he was prepared to live with that because he, he saw that uh, the, the most helpful thing for us as human beings is to, to recognize the, the power of grasping, the power of, of clinging, attachment, upadana, the power of craving, tanha, to see that as the, the real uh, ailment, the kind of the cause of, of suffering, to see that as the, the true cause of our spiritual illness, these feelings of insecurity, incompleteness, dissatisfaction, dukkha, alienation. However, we, we experience that. To recognize that, that quality of tanha, craving, upadana, clinging, to recognize that, to know that, and to, to use the teachings, the practice of, of meditation, the practice of sila, the practice of dana, and the many skillful means to recognize that, to know that, to, and to to uh, to free the heart from those habits of, of grasping and of, of craving. And that's what will set the whole of this life in balance. That's what will free this heart from all limitation. That's what will free this heart from the, the bounds of birth and death. I feel uh, Lumpur Sumedho spent uh, more than 40 years expounding on this teaching and talking about the Four Noble Truths. So many, many of us have heard him speaking on these, these themes many, many times and uh, have a direct sense from our own experience, our own practice, how when those, uh, the, those principles are applied, when we, we use them to examine our, our own, uh, say, self-view, our own attachments, our own fears, our own desires, our own jealousies, our own... Uh, complaints and criticisms, our own negativities. Uh, when we, we use the power of awareness itself to know that, then this is really what frees the heart. And this is, the again, as Lumpur Sumato would stress over and over again, this is the, the very best that we can do with the human life. With this life of ours, that's the, the, the very best that, that we can do. Uh, it's, uh, it's interesting also to consider how... Um, 
that uh, say uh, misjudgment of the the teaching or looking upon the the teaching of the ending of rebirth, not being born again, it comes across in in a negative way, and also how that seems to have given rise to the the Mahayana movement in about five hundred years after the Buddha. It's much more um, say um, uh, socially oriented approach to to practice. Uh, and I'm not a, a scholar of Buddhist history, uh, but uh, the, the sense that I have is that um, the, the, this kind of focus on, no, you've got to practice on yourself, practice on yourself, that's the best thing you can do with your life, that's the best thing you can do for all human beings. That, uh, that principle uh, over time uh, seems to uh, also have been somewhat mishandled, so it became, uh, uh, say, uh, a common practice or a common approach that you, know, you didn't care about the public, you didn't care about you know, as a monastic practitioner, you didn't care about the the the, uh, the broader community. You just trusted the idea that your own liberation is the most important thing, and uh, and so there was a kind of shutting down. Seemingly, this is that seems to be how it uh, how that Mahayana movement began. There was a kind of shutting down of, of concern for engaging with the greater population. The monasteries came, became much more enclosed, became a kind of spiritual meditation camp. And uh, there was more of an alienation, a separation between the, the monastic uh, practitioners, the renunciate sort of professionals, and then the, the lay community that were much more uh, at a distance. And so that uh, it seems as though about 500 years after the Buddha, they tried to sort of, as they create a much more of an inclusive uh, approach. And so then, around that time, about uh, uh, from about 100 um, bef- years before the Common Era, 100 BC to um, about 200, uh, about 100 years uh, after. So within that that period, then the, the Mahayana movement grew up, and, and that was then uh, placing the, the bodhisattva as the central ideal, that uh, not just working for your own liberation, but working for the, the benefit very consciously and actively for the benefit of all living beings. And so during that time, then the, uh, as, as I understand it, then the, uh, what's called the, the four bodhisattva vows were, were established. Uh, and these, in the English translation, go something like, Living beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. Afflictions are limitless, I vow to cut them all off. Uh, Dharma doors are infinite, I vow, to enf- I, I vow to enter them all. So different skillful means, different ways of practice are infinite, I vow to practice them all. And the Buddha way is supreme, I vow to accomplish it. So I vow to you know, realize Buddhahood. So uh, that, that's a very... Uh, uh, say expansive or, or sort of uh, a very broad view, trying to um, say practice very very consciously, not just for the benefit of this being, but the, for the benefit of all beings. And also, it's interesting that uh, around the, the same time, then the there was an emphasis on the uh, the teachings on emptiness. So people like uh, Nagarjuna uh, came into into. Uh, a circle of things and teachings about the uh, the meditation on emptiness, the realization of of shunyata also entered the picture. So uh, um, I'm not wanting to make this whole dhamma talk as a, a, a thesis on Mahayana Buddhism, but it, it's interesting that uh, both of those teachings, the teachings on emptiness, I say it like in, you find in the Heart Sutra, which is. Uh, they recited um, pretty much every day in, in, in most um, northern Buddhist uh, monasteries, temples, uh, Zen centers, Tibetan centers, Chinese monasteries, and Vietnamese uh, uh, temples all around the world. The Heart Sutra is, is recited very, very often, and also the, the four Bodhisattva vows are also recited very, very often. So I, uh, over the years, I spent quite a bit of time st- uh, staying in... Uh, Chinese monasteries, Tibetan monasteries, uh, Zen centers, as well as Theravada monasteries and the monasteries of this community. And uh, one of the things that I found interesting was that uh, the, um, both of these 
these sort of Mahayana um, teachings or the practices, they both relate uh, very directly to the Four Noble Truths. And also they, they in, a, in a sense, resonate many of uh, Lumpur Sumedho's teachings and the teachings you find in the, the Thai forest tradition. So, you know, it just uh, occurs to me to, to you know, uh, reflect on this for, the, for uh, this evening. Also, it's come up in conversation with a few different people in the last few weeks. So in the, in the Heart Sutra, uh, it says uh, the most famous lines are form is emptiness, emptiness itself is form. Form is not separate from emptiness, emptiness is not self separate from form. So too, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness. Um, and then later on in the Heart Sutra, it says there is no suffering, no origin of suffering, no cessation of suffering, and no way. Uh, um, so that right there you have um, the, uh, the, in a sense, referring to the Four Noble Truths, reflecting on emptiness, saying there isn't really any suffering. There isn't any origin of suffering. There really isn't any cessation of suffering. And there is no path. These, these things are all empty. And those of you who have listened to Lumpur Sumato's uh, Dhamma talks over the years will have heard him say exactly this, probably from this very same seat. <laughs> yeah, he would say things like, there really isn't any suffering. We think there is. We believe there is uh, in the moment where the mind grasps that actually there really isn't any suffering there. It just really feels like it. <laughs> there, there really isn't, in its essence, there isn't any suffering. So the Four Noble Truths, they are noble. They're not absolute. Uh, and why they're called noble arya is because they're conventional truths, but if they're used, if they're applied, if they're if they're worked with, then they lead to the heart's liberation, the heart's uh, full awakening, the the heart's uh, full enlightenment, the the heart's uh, fulfillment of its uh, of its own uh, potential. So that uh, he would, over and over again, Lumpur would say they're noble because they're, they're conventional truths. It's not saying that. Yeah, that there is dukkha is the absolute, the fundamental nature of of all things in the universe, of all qualities. But rather, uh, <clears throat> there is the experience of dukkha that we can we can know from time to time. That dukkha uh, arises. It arises. Why does it arise? Because there's clinging. So the just as Lumpur Sumedho would emphasize, when you look at dukkha, it's just a feeling. There isn't anything really there. <laughs> you look at the origin of dukkha grasping, you're looking at that a state of mind. What, what's the, the essence? What's the heart, the, the core of a state of mind? It's just a, a pattern of consciousness arising and ceasing. It has no core. It has no essence. It's like the, the layers of the onion. You just keep peeling away the layers and there's no essence at the center. It's just layer upon layer giving it a form, but there's no fundamental substance. Just as the, the Buddha described in his uh, the teaching called the, the lump of foam, he said, you know, the body is like a lump of foam on the river. The feelings are like a water bubble when rain splashes on a pond. Just a bubble forms for a moment and has, it has a shape but no essence. Yeah. Perceptions are, are like a, a mirage, like a hazy image that you see in the desert. Mental formations, uh, volitions, uh, thoughts, feelings, emotions... They are like the, the trunk of a, of a banana plant. They're just layer upon layer of leaf. There's no, there's no heartwood. There's no essence. And consciousness, vijnana, is like a conjuring trick, like a, a performance of a conjurer. There, there's, no, there's a shape, there's a form, but there's no essence. There, there's no thing really there. So the, the, the Heart Sutra then in that, portrays that same kind of teaching that, yeah, there's the Four Noble Truths, but they're not absolute. In their essence... They are empty. They have no fundamental substance. But then uh, uh, the, the, that teaching, the Heart Sutra, is often chanted in the same pujas along with the four Bodhisattva vows. Uh, and many years ago, I came across an interesting commentary uh, from the Chinese tradition where it pointed out that the, f the four Bodhisattva vows come directly from the Four Noble Truths. And so it takes the wording of each of the four truths and sort of expands it to make it more explicitly, a universal consideration. So not just um, this being experiences dukkha, but living beings are numberless. Uh, I vow to save them all. The suffering of all living beings uh, needs to be considered as well. Not just the suffering of this being, but the suffering of all beings. Uh, 
uh, in the Four Noble Truths, we say the second noble truth, you know, there is the origin of dukkha. The, the origin of dukkha is tanha, the three different kinds of, of craving, craving for sense pleasure, craving to become, or craving to be, and craving for annihilation, craving to, to not be. So these are the, the, the cause of suffering. So in the, in the four um, bodhisattva vows, that second vow is uh, afflictions are limitless, I vow to cut them all off. So that not just does this being experience kilesas and different kinds of craving, the three different kinds of craving, but all beings do. So afflictions are limitless, uh, also limitless within ourselves, So, but also there amongst all other beings. And so it's a dedication to helping other beings to cut their uh, afflictions off, to end their, their attachments and their cravings. Then the, in the the general expression of the the, the four bodhisattva vows, the, the order of three and four uh, is reversed. So instead of having the ending of the dukkha niroda and then the eightfold path, they're switched around. So the third of the bodhisattva vows is uh, the um, uh, dharma doors are limitless. I vow to enter them all, which is the, the sort of expanded equivalent of the eightfold path. So there's the ways and means of practicing are, are uncountable. Dharma doors, the, the different skillful means, the different practices, the different techniques, different methods, different uh, appropriate uh, uh, ways of developing the insight into Dhamma and applying it. Uh, they're uncountable, they're infinite. Uh, so that corresponds to the Eightfold Path. Uh, and then the... Uh, uh, the Dukkha Niroda, as you have in the Four Noble Truths, is then sort of expanded to the Buddha way is supreme, I vow to accomplish it. So there's the dedication to keep practicing until Buddhahood is realized. So uh, uh, it's a, a deliberate expansion or a, a way of speaking about the Four Truths that say, say don't just focus on, on number one, on this person, but recognize your life is connected to other lives and your practice affects the, the lives of others. And uh, if we include the presence, the feelings, the attitudes, the experience of, of others, then that's going to be a, of great benefit. So uh, uh, the teachings are, are uh, should be all, always be understood as, as skillful means. They're, they're methods, they're upayas. So that uh, I feel that what we have in this in, in many ways is say when the Four Noble Truths, as we have them in the, the Pali Canon, as, as great teachers like Lumpur Cha, Lumpur Sumato expound them, they, they really uh, say embody uh, uh, all of those qualities, both the, uh, the transparency, the empty quality, these are noble truths, they're not absolute truths, they're just um, uh, uh, conventional, uh, arisen, conditioned phenomena. Suffering is, is empty. Uh, the cause of suffering is empty. The cessation of suffering is empty. The Eightfold Path is empty. These are, there is no solid, permanent, a- essential thing there. But uh, they are, have conventional forms. They exist in the world like these words, like, say, gathering together for the new moon night. We have a, there's a, the, the forms are, are, say, shaped by... Uh, the, by our, our thinking, by our seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, the, the patterns of, of the way that the world works. This creates a form of our experience in the present moment. And those forms can be used to help the heart to awaken to that which is beyond form. This is the only way the, the great miracle of the, the Buddha Dhamma is it's a conditioned thing, it's a convention but it helps us to awaken to that which is beyond convention. It's a condition. It's a formed, limited pattern in nature, but it helps the, uh, the heart to awaken to that which is uh, unborn, undying, that which is beyond the senses, that which is beyond birth and death. Uh, that's the, uh, what the Buddha called the miracle of instruction. That, uh, how amazing that a, a condition, a, a, a limited uh, time-bound form, can be a catalyst, can help the heart to awaken that, to that which is timeless, that which is unborn, undying. That's amazing. So we recognize that uh, these forms, whether it's the, the Four Noble Truths, as, as we have it in the Pali Canon, or as it's sort of uh, 
it's a it's its empty aspect is emphasized in the Heart Sutra, or its universal aspect is uh, emphasized in the Bodhisattva vows. These these are all just to me. These are all just skillful means. I might be completely wrong, of course, <laughs> but I see these as as skillful means. So if you're if you're too fixed, you're taking the Four Noble Truths as absolute realities. Now, there is suffering. I am suffering. This is absolutely real. And you're clinging and the defilements, they're, they're absolutely solid and realness. They are uh, true, uh, permanent things. Then it's helpful to recognize they're empty. I like hearing Ajahn Sumedha saying, there is no suffering. And when you've been carrying around some kind of problem, some uh, obsession, some irritation, some grumble, some complaint, and then to hear Lumpur saying, there is no suffering, something in us goes, ah, what? Huh? what? <laughs> but I've been, I've been carrying this around for a whole week. It must be real. <laughs> but, uh, uh, or not for a week, you know, maybe a decade. You know, some particular object of grasping, identifying with our... Uh, uh, some aspect of our personality or our history, our past, our our, our character. That is to say, there is no suffering. Something in the heart goes, "Oh, wow! Look at that." So if we are if we are attaching to the 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 truths and making them solid, then we need to be reminded that they are empty. That they are noble truths. They're not absolute truths. That craving, even though it might be repeating itself we might feel it over and over and again craving is not our true nature it might feel like it is <laughs> think well i never i never stop being greedy for, all the time ajahn i'm you know, my whenever i look at my mind i want <laughs> i'm always wanting it never stops but we might tell ourselves that but when we look and closely examine we say actually it's not i just i might tell myself it's there all the time well like i used to I used to believe I was afraid, I was worrying all the time. But uh, uh, again, from, from Lumpur Sumato's advice, that you, know, you might tell yourself, I'm annoyed all the time, or I'm worried all the time, or I'm filled with desire all the time, or I'm jealous all the time. That's just a story that we tell ourselves. Uh, ask yourself, is it true? Look, examine it. And so I, 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 fear and worry was a, a big thing for me, so I... I started to look and I realized, actually, he's right. <laughs> Amazing, the teacher is right. <laughs> who, could, uh, who would have thought such a thing? But uh, he said, yeah, I, I tell myself I'm always worried, but actually I'm not. It, it comes and goes. There's, there's times when I forget to be worried. Yeah, I feel irresponsible at those times. <laughs> you know, they, oh, quick, find something to fret about. Yeah, or <clears throat> but uh, you see, we might tell ourselves we have that habit, or that's what we are in the basic foundation of our being. But it, it's not true. We, and with the meditation, with uh, the practice of insight, samatha, uh, tranquility, vipassana and samatha, insight and tranquility, that helps us to see. Look at that. Fear arises and passes away. Desire arises and passes away. Uh, insecurity arises and passes away. Desire arises and passes away. It's not there all the time. It's not an absolute reality. Well, similarly, if we, we say, well, now I, I, uh, the Buddha says you've got to practice on yourself, practice on yourself, practice on yourself. You know, other people are just a distraction. You know, we shouldn't get caught up in social issues and we, we should just be concerned. Practice, practice, practice. And the, you can certainly make a case for that but uh, I think what happened with the Mahayana movement, uh, why it sort of uh, uh, arose about 400 years after the Buddha, was that there was too many people that were doing that and you know, clinging to that idea, saying, yeah, to some extent, this, this, is, this is the world that we can change you know, directly and immediately, this, this heart of our own. That's the, the main uh, place of work. But our, also, don't forget, our lives affect each other. We, we have an impact on others. Others have an impact on us. We're, we are related to the world that we're, we're living in, the, the air that we breathe, the ground we walk on, the, the, the plants and animals around us, the food that we eat. We share this life with others. And we, if we shut that out and we just uh, focus solely on this mind, this body, uh, that can drift into being an attitude that's based on aversion, based on fear, based on 
on uh, self-centeredness, is it with a good intention, but with a, a negative result. Get, we get too closed off. So then these expressions that say, you know, look, look, it's not just this being, but uh, you know, other beings are, are in the picture too. That uh, uh, that's my my own uh, sort of pet theory or feeling about where that came from was trying to, uh, in a sense, uh, remind people what's there in the Four Noble Truths, uh, what's there in the teaching. It doesn't. Yes, you work on this life primarily, but your life is connected to other lives, and so it's a way of, of reminding us and sort of opening up the field. Uh, but I would uh, I would uh, say that uh, if we've practiced according to the Thai forest tradition, we listen to the teachings of Lumpur Cha, Lumpur Sumedho, and other forest, uh, you know, wise forest ajans, that uh, exactly that, you know, they talk about, you know, practice on yourself, practice on yourself, but most of the, the great uh, ajans uh, who are uh, dedicated Theravadans, most of the ones that I've ever met spend th- uh, 80% of their time being available for, for the lay community <laughs> giving blessings, giving teachings giving advice uh, traveling here, there and everywhere to, to conduct ceremonies open um, and bless people's houses give dhamma talks, run retreats uh, the uh, ceaseless flow of activity to, to be of benefit to all beings, whoever shows up in the monastery or whoever invites one to, to uh, Bring the dhamma to to their uh, their home or to their school or their hospital or their business or to the, their part of the country. There's a, a very interesting teaching in this respect um, called the Acrobats. That uh, really uh, it's a, it's a short sutta. It's called the Siddhaka Sutta. It took place in a town called Siddhaka. Spelt the same as Neil Sadaka's name, S-E-D-A-K-A, Sadaka, Sutta. And it's called the Acrobats. And uh, <clears throat> the Buddha said there was this, uh, uh, these street uh, acrobats who were living in this town of Sadaka. And uh, there was a father and a daughter. Uh, for some reason, the daughter's name was Frying Pan. It maybe has some kind of particular meaning in Pali or some sort of, asp- uh, you know, Subtle meshes that goes with it. I'm not quite sure, but it was a, it's a, it was a daughter. So the name is a feminine name, and it means frying pan. So, who knows what the story is behind that? But anyway, there was they they had this um, the kind of street uh, uh, the, uh, theater performance they did, where uh, the the uh, the father had a, a bamboo pole. It would be about you know. Uh, three or four meters long, and he would balance the pole on his hand, and then the, his little daughter, frying pan, would climb up the pole and then perform various little acrobatic tricks on the pole while he's he's holding it up. And uh, you, even today in India, you still see people, um, the kind of street acrobats that uh, have these kind of performances. And uh, there was a uh, a recent book um, uh, called A Fine Balance by an Indian writer called Rohit Mystery. And on the front cover, you have exactly this uh, street acrobat, and he's a man holding the bamboo pole on the top of one finger, and his little daughter kind of up at the top of the pole, then doing her, <laughs> doing her tricks. And it's sort of a, it's a, a, a kind of balancing act. And so in this, little, in this sutta, the Buddha said, um, yeah, uh, there was this dialogue between the father and the daughter, and the father said to the daughter, uh, frying pan, frying pan. Yeah, you uh, <coughs> you climb up the the pole, and y- you you pay attention to what to what I'm doing, and I'll pay attention to what you're doing, and then you'll be able to climb up the pole, perform your tricks, and come down safely, and we'll get a good fee for our performance. And she said, No, that's not right. That's the wrong way around. Uh, I'll pay attention to what I do. You you pay ta- you pay attention to what you need to do. And that's the way that I'll climb up the pole, perform my tricks, and get safely down from the pole, and how we'll get a good fee. And then the, the Buddha says, in this instance, the, the, the child is right and the father is wrong. <laughs> so he very, uh, it's, and it's in a way, this is sort of the essence of the Theravada spirit. It's like, you know, that I paid, I, I've got to give most of my attention to what I'm doing. That's where the, uh, but if I pay attention to what I'm doing and you take care of what you're doing, then then we can work together 
successfully. If, if, I'm, if I'm putting too much attention on you and you're putting too much attention on me, then uh, things are going uh, uh, to fall apart. We're not, we're not going to look after our, our work, our, our effort in the best way. So it's a short sutta, but it really carries the essence of the, the sort of the Theravada approach. That uh, yes, you you um, you pay attention primarily to what you need to do, but you're also recognizing that when um, when you do that, then everybody benefits. And then the sutta goes on to say, uh, in uh, uh, the Buddha says, so how is it that one benefits oneself? Uh, and uh, and he said by uh, by practicing the four foundations of mindfulness, this is how you you most uh, helpfully uh, benefit yourself. Um, and and by benefiting yourself, you benefit others. So that and that he spells out you know if you if you benefit yourself, if you put your attention on what you need to do, then that's the way you 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 help yourself most, and also how how you help others in the best way. And the, the way you do that is by developing the four foundations of mindfulness. Mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of, the feel, of feelings, mindfulness of moods and mind states, and, and mindfulness of, uh, of dhammas, mindfulness of, of, uh, of the, uh, the field of experience in terms of dhamma, and particularly in terms of the, the law of change. But then he flips it around, as, the, as he often does in, in many, many teachings, So uh, he says, but also uh, he extends it as he uh, very often does in these kind of teachings. He says, but also by uh, it's uh, in addition, it's by helping others uh, that you also help yourself. So the way you help others most fully is by helping yourself, but also uh, you can help yourself by helping others. So it's the, sort of the last part of it. He says, how, how do you help yourself? By helping others. And then he says, by practicing patience, by practicing kindness, by practicing kanti um, metta, uh, kindness, uh, patience, um, sympathy, and uh, another one. <laughs> The, uh, see, there's four of them: uh, patience, kindness, sympathy, and the other one will come to me in a moment. So. But uh, so that if you are, t- uh, say, relating to other people with um, with patience, with kanti, with metta, um, oh, and, and harmlessness—that's the one. Yeah, avihingsa. So. Uh, if you relate to others uh, uh, with kindness, with patience, with uh, non-violence, and with sympathy, then uh, not only do, does that benefit others, if you relate to the other beings with those qualities, but then also that, that helps you, that those are qualities that uh, support you in, y- in your own effort, in your own, uh, they support your own well-being. So uh, uh, it's a very short sutta, but it contains a lot uh, within it, that sense of how uh, uh, there, right there, the, the, uh, the Buddha is saying, yes, we need to work on ourselves, but also understanding that that's also the best way we help others. <laughs> but, and also that if, even if we're just concerned about benefiting ourselves, one of the ways that we can benefit ourselves is by being helpful to others. <laughs> So that uh, right there in that teaching, it's, uh, it's spelling out uh, quite clearly that uh, just sort of trying to practice in isolation and shut everybody else out it, or, or switch off that natural concern that we have for others is, is a distortion of, of Dhamma. It's not, a, it's not really a, a principle that he encouraged. But I can imagine how over the centuries, by, you know, four or five centuries after his time that things seem to have, have drifted in that way and so to to expand the picture or to make that clear that sense of of uh, not just working on yourself for your own benefit but also recognizing how that naturally benefits others then that uh, <clears throat> that needed to be clarified spelled out and so that became the kind of uh, impetus the fuel the the, the 
say the, the thing that that started off the that Mahayana movement about uh, 500 years after the the Parinibbana. And one of the, uh, also reflecting on, on Lumpur Sumedho's teachings and talking with, with someone today, um, they're talking about uh, the, how to deal with, with difficult mind states. You know, uh, the, uh, one of the qualities of, uh, of, uh, that is central to the practice, or one of the, 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 say, the supportive conditions for realizing stream entry, the supportive conditions for wisdom, is the quality of mindfulness, sati-sampajanya. So in ordinary uh, familiar English translations, this would be rendered as uh, mindfulness and clear comprehension, or mindfulness and full understanding, mindfulness and full awareness. Uh, many years ago, then, Lumpur Sumato started to say that uh, he, he didn't really think that was a very good translation, because he said, you know, you can be mindful of something that you, that you don't comprehend at all, to say... Uh, uh, clear comprehension means it's, it implies that you understand what's going on. But he said, but you can really be fully mindful of not having a clue what's happening. You, know, you can be really in the dark and not know which way is forward. You, know, you, you, you really don't know what's going on. So that's when he coined this phrase, uh, intuitive awareness. So that's his, his rendering of the Pali uh, Sati Sampajanya. Intuitive awareness. So the mind is awake and there's an intuition, a sense of what's, what's being experienced, a, a feeling for it, but we don't necessarily have to, to understand it, or explain it, or have an idea of where it comes from, or what it might mean. But we can know there is this, and it feels exactly this way. And uh, in, in the conversation I was having with, with this person uh, uh, today, they, they said, uh, uh, <clears throat> and I was saying that uh, yeah, the, the um, the establishment of awareness, the mind which is has sati sampajanya, is really the centerpiece of the the practice in many respects. Because we can know confusion and not be uh, attached to trying to get rid of it. We can uh, say uh, see, have different feelings of uh, say discomfort or uncertainty, and we if we're attached to the idea of certainty or wanting to be comfortable or wanting to know what's going on or wanting to know what should i do what's the right thing for me to do you know, sometimes we 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 can't know that it's not clear it's like if it's dark and you haven't got a, a torch or there isn't there isn't any light you, you can blink as much as you like but you <laughs> and you can peer but you, you can't make it light you can't see because there's not enough light or if it's foggy you know you can keep blinking but you're, no matter how much you blink, you, you won't make the fog go away. So uh, in, in this, this dialogue, the, the person would say, well, I thought you know, Ajahn Sumedha, he wouldn't kind of experience kind of un, you know, that sort of uh, uh, uncertainty or insecurity uh, or you know, those kind of emotions. And I said, oh, yes, he would. <laughs> if you listen to his teachings over and over again, he would talk about having the feelings of, of self-criticism or jealousy or uh, uh, irritation and and um, that uh, and then the, the fellow said hey, he would he wouldn't ex he wouldn't feel those things would he <laughs> you know, I get the sense he just kind of uh, he you know he's just sort of wide awake and and things like that just don't even arise for him as a uh, my memory of the conversation from this morning I said oh no no if you if you talk with him and meet with him, uh, he's regularly very, very candid about the different waves of emotion and feeling that, that are going on. But uh, his mind is so used to practicing with it, it there's a clarity that this is just a feeling. And so for many of us, this is a, a really important territory, and it's something that, that people have often not developed very much because the mind so easily buys into that state. I don't want to be confused. I don't want to have this doubt. I want to know what I should do. What's the right thing? I want to know. I don't want to have this aversion. Or someone, another person was saying today, I just started this new job. I'm a junior doctor and, and, I'm, uh, and it's a very high pressure and I'm feeling a lot of criticism, <laughs> negativity and aversion for the people that I'm working with. Yeah, how can I stop feeling so? How can I get rid of this negativity? Um, 
So it's very natural and ordinary for us to to, to feel like if I, uh, I'm feeling negativity or I'm feeling jealousy or I'm feeling uncertainty, insecurity, I would like to have me without the insecurity, me without the negativity, me without the jealousy, me without this problem, this difficulty. And wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> and if we we sort of read the read the texts, then we think, well, yeah, that seems to be what the the teachings are pointing towards. Um, uh, well, that would be nice <laughs> if I can just get rid of this problem, get rid of this doubt, get rid of this negativity, get rid of this uh, obsession or greed or fear. Then there'd be me with no obsession. Great. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> what is so helpful with the teaching and also what this quality of sati sampajanya, mindfulness and full awareness, if you like, or, or intuitive awareness, is about is recognizing. Rather than if I could get rid of this, then I then I get to that that nice place over there in the future where there's me without this problem. Instead, we bring the attention to what's here in this moment. This feeling of uh, Ajahn Amaro is talking too quickly. I can't understand all his words. Why doesn't he slow down? <laughs> what what was that? Uh, what was that sutta quote? I can't remember that. Uh, I'm trying to remember the quote, and he's carrying on. I can't I can't hear. Or that person next to me, they're breathing in that really annoying way. <laughs> Can't concentrate on the Dhamma talk because you know he's breathing like that again. So we we can focus on our aversion or our, our perception and think, oh, I want to get rid of this, and so I can I can have that comfortable, nice, beautiful uh, state over there, off in the future. But instead, if we, we bring the attention right now to this, this feeling of, uh, uh, this is the, I wish it was different because then I could, uh, I would feel more comfortable feeling. Here's the, uh, um, I'm, I'm supposed to be a good Buddhist, I shouldn't be feeling such aversion to my, my boss feeling. <laughs> this is the, uh, 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 these confusing, complicated emotions are arising and I have no idea uh, what, where this comes from or what this means, feeling. And in that moment, the, the, the mind is fully aware of, of that perception arising and passing. It's, it's doing its thing. The, in that moment, the mind knows that is not self. That feeling of aversion, that feeling of desire, that feeling of fear, that feeling of attachment, that's not who and what I am. In that moment, that is clarified. So even though the object might be a, 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 a serious defilement or might be very confusing, it might be um, very mysterious, in that moment the, the heart is fully aware oh, there is this. It knows it as, a, as an object. And in that, in that moment there's a, there's a spaciousness, there's a, a clarity, there's a, a freedom in the heart. Even if the object is very chaotic or weird or or uh, uh, say threatening or or, or painful, uh, you know, exactly what you didn't want. <laughs> the 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 mind can know that. Oh, this is the uh, the this is the this is so painful. I don't know if I can stand it. Feeling, <laughs> that's what this is. This is the oh no. I wish this was uh, this was the last thing I wanted to happen, and here it is. Feeling, that's what this is. Here's the, oh no, it's him, I, I don't know what to say to him, and he's, he's always asking me to solve his problems, feeling. <laughs> so that, <clears throat> with um, this establishment of, of mindfulness, of uh, intuitive awareness, there's a bringing of the attention in this very moment to exactly what we're feeling. We're not trying to straighten out the world and make it be different so I'll feel happy, but rather... Uh, clarifying exactly what's here in this moment, in this this present reality, and in that moment, the heart is is unobstructed by that, is is uh, is liberated from that, is uh, is freed from that. And then, uh, when when the heart is is a disentangled or is is freed from the uh, f- obsessing on that particular. Uh, perception, that, that mood, or that, uh, that sensation, then it's free to respond. It's free to, it, so it's not a, a way of just sort of 
dissociating or dislocating, kind of just switching off, like, that's just an object, you know, you're just a perception in my mind, you know, you don't really count. <laughs> you're just empty, anicca, dukkha, anatta. It's not a, uh, we, uh, we're not just uh, making ourselves numb or dissociating from the experience, experienced world, but rather when there is that spaciousness in the heart, there is that recognition, oh, in this moment there is this, there's this feeling of confusion or this feeling of, of desire, this feeling of uh, irritation. When there's that, uh, that little extra space around it, then the heart is free to respond in a wise and kind and appropriate way. We can respond with kindness, patience, sympathy, and nonviolence. When, uh, when we are trying to get rid of our defilements or trying to uh, say um, we're uh, grasping the, the present feeling, the, the feeling that's here in the present moment, then we just react. We chase after what we like and want to take hold of it. We push away and resent what we dislike. And the the heart is in a reactive and and stressed mode. When uh, there is this quality of spaciousness, when there's a true intuitive awareness, then the heart is is able to respond. We're we're able to... uh, relate to the present situation. If there's something to say, we can say it. If there's nothing to say, we can leave it alone. If there's something that we can do to help, we do it. If there's nothing we can do to help, we leave things alone. So that there, there's a tremendous freedom in that. We're not acting out of fear, anxiety, agitation or compulsion. But there's a spaciousness, uh, an ease within us. So these are a few thoughts uh, for for everyone's uh, consideration on uh, this new moon night. And so uh, as usual with our um, uh, observance days, people are are welcome, invited to join in with the vigil till uh, till midnight when we'll have a a close the evening with a a formal uh, uh, chant of, well, one of the... uh, Verses of dedication uh, or reflection, uh, and then uh, those who wish to stay on through the night uh, into the small hours are welcome to do so. Those who need to go and rest or would like to do that, then are welcome to, to do that too. <laughs>